0: Generally speaking, my recommendation is companies with good loss ratios need to be looking at captives. If you can't manage risk, you probably shouldn't be in a self-insurance world. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Defense MRS. I am your hostess, Megan Henry. And today I have on Matthew Queen. Um, and for those of you who may recall, we had him on a few weeks ago. And a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, getting on panel, which, of course, is something a lot of defense attorneys want to know the secret sauce, too. Today, Matthew's here to talk about something a little different because he's changed roles. And now he's the chief risk officer of uh, Goldner Capital Management, and he handle, manages captives. And a lot of us don't even understand captives. So he's kind of here to unpack it a little bit for us and explain how captives work, uh, what what industries they're best for. And again, also, he also as always, he dives into counsel, and what he looks for in defense counsel. So with that, let's bring him in. Hi, Matthew. Welcome back on the Defense of Arrest. I'm so happy to have you back today. How are you?
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So we had you on a few weeks ago and we recorded an episode talking about panel counsel and or how to get on panel. Uh, and today we're shifting gears because your gears have shifted and you've shifted over to a new role. Some of our listeners might not be that familiar with captives. So can you give like the, you know, 101, you know, version of what a captive may be?
0: Sure. A captive is a wholly-owned insurance company, and it is captive to a parent. Now, in my case, it's a private equity group, so the captive provides insurance for a variety of different subsidiaries across the country. Um, But the captive concept got started uh, in the the 50s or the 60s when there were uh, uh, no reinsurers that were willing to do business, I think it was with coal miners. So there's some sort of a, 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 a coverage crisis. And uh, some guy basically has had this idea like, I mean, what's insurance? It's just, it's pool of cash. We'll make our own insurance company. And um, it went on from there. And the, the Internal Revenue Service never really liked it because of the balance sheet problem. Their, 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 their idea was that, okay, so you created this magic bank account that where the money goes in is suddenly a tax deduction. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's in the same economic family. And really, this was actually a huge point of debate. And, I, and, I, and, I, and it's really important to remember that under uh, Internal Revenue Code Section 162, business uh, uh, insurance, well, you know, like most, most insurance and overall, is a tax deduction. So how easy is it to manufacture kind of a phony baloney tax deduction I mean, think about? it. Right. So I'm gonna insure uh, this cell phone right here for a million bucks. Uh, you know, yesterday I had that money in my savings account, tomorrow I put it into my captive insurance company, but because I'm calling a premium, all of a sudden it's a tax deduction. So the the Internal Revenue Service saw potential for abuse right from the beginning. And then in 1989, with the Humana case, uh, the Internal Revenue Service's arguments on the economic family doctrine were firmly put to rest. And and I, I would argue that since 1989, the world of captive insurance has been legitimized and has grown relatively well uh, in fits and starts over the years. It grows like like a vine or like kudzu in periods of a hard market like we're in right now. And then it doesn't do so well on a soft market. And the reason for that is that most people are just going after cheap insurance. And I'm sure you can feel the pain. If there are any defense attorneys listening to this, Literally, no one cares how good you are. Everyone's just going after the cheapest defense attorney. So differentiating yourselves as an insurance company is almost as hard as trying to say that you're better than another lawyer down the street.
1: Yeah. And is that why, in my experience, a lot of captives, they have a lot of meetings um, outside the United States. Like, I feel like a lot of them are are domiciled in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands or, or other locations. Where the, was that traditionally why that occurred because of the issues of the IRS early on?
0: Not necessarily. That's a good question. So that's no longer the case because of the Trump tax cuts. So it had nothing to do with captives, but it was Apple had just some obscene amount of money that was parked, I want to say, in Ireland. Long story short, they changed the rules to make it more capital efficient to bring money back onshore. And as a consequence, I believe it's the controlled foreign corporation rules changed. And a lot of these offshore captives became less useful. So we saw an in-flight of captives from various offshore locales in, into back into the United States. But um, Bermuda is a reinsurance hub. And when you're setting up a complex insurance company going to where people know what know what they're doing makes a lot of sense so bermuda and cayman are big vermont is big vermont is i would argue the 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 capital of captives in the united states which is kind of i'm embarrassed to say i've never even set foot in the state of vermont you'd think you'd think (laughs) i would have made my way there but now i'm still having it's
1: beautiful um offshore, (laughs) um,
0: uh, offshore Offshore uh, is also where you find a lot of your uh, Lloyd's connections. So people who either work for Lloyd's or work with Lloyd's, generally speaking, have the institutional knowledge to do to, to pull off what you want to pull off. So you end up with with a, with a lot of kind of overseas work in this space.
1: So, you know, what type of industries, you know, are good candidates for captives? Is it could it be any or is it there's certain types that it's more niche based that it's good for?
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell anyone who's listening that I think that um, a big ticket cyber insurance is a Ponzi scheme and it doesn't take a genius to figure out why they the the underwriters continue to misunderstand the nature of the risk. And if you if you look at what's going on in Kazakhstan right now, they're under a revolution. They shut down the Internet. That's a 19 million person country. It could never happen here. But that, I'm going to say a bad word, that's bullshit, okay? Get it from your head. It absolutely can happen here. And I and evidence number one, or evidence A, not a very good lawyer. The point is, <laughs> look at look at COVID. COVID could never happen here because their CDC is too good, we're a first world country, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, if you have kids, they've been home like 50% of the time for two years. So like nobody expected COVID to be able to happen here. And because of these non state actors that are being leveraged by the great powers in lieu of kinetic action, you're going to start to see uh, mass scale cyber events become the norm. Which means that when you go to your cyber policies, you see that big exclusion on there for war exclusions, it, 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 it doesn't exist. And this is not academic. When Russia, I think Russia shot down like a airliner over Malaysia or something a couple of years ago. And all the political risk uh, insurers sat there and said, Oh, it's not covered. It's not covered because Russia said they didn't do it. <laughs> I mean, that was it. That was the end of the discussion. So then the traditional airline coverage had to come into effect. All right. right. So now everyone's sitting there thinking Matthew's a chicken little. He doesn't know what he's talking about. If, China or the DPRK shut down the internet in New York, you know. Obviously, cyber insurance wouldn't come into effect because that's a that's a that's that's an act of war. But if it's through the Foot Clan or you know some Al Qaeda clone that just happens to be the you know the the I the the, I get the, the internet address comes out of Singapore or something. You know, DPRK is not going to take responsibility for it. China's not going to take responsibility for it. It's this its this autonomous terrorist organization that could very well actually be, be, be in Beijing. So then the cyber insurance carriers are on the hook. But now think about what I just told you. If network interruption is a part of your basic cyber policy and 15 or 20% of your insureds declare uh, a business interruption claim at the same time, right? and that's occurring at AIG and Beasley and CNA and Liberty. And I, I mean, holy smokes, mm-hmm. the, the, the reinsurers will run out of liquidity. This is, this is not an insurable interest. And, 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 and I'm so confident in this because it's a, just look at the fraud triangle. You get the means, the motive and the opportunity. Does a state actor have the means like the resources to be able to pull something off like Shutting down Bank of America for a day, shutting down ADP for a couple of weeks, shutting down the Internet. Yeah, I I think they do. And do they have the the intel somewhere in Russia or China? Of course, you know that. So do they have the opportunity? Probably, probably. I'm not a computer science guy, but I I think they probably have spies in place. It doesn't take a tremendous amount of creative thinking to see how the opportunity may, may be there. So is the motive there? Currently, no. Currently, no. Uh, but that could change. You know, China could make a move on Taiwan. Russia could invade Ukraine. We could have a nut job in the White House. I mean, just you know, things can change. So I don't think that people are thinking about this clearly. And history shows that insurance carriers have never understood cyber. It started off as a throwaway on a property policy that they just threw in there. And then it became its own policy once the losses showed up. And they said, oh, goodness, cyber is actually a real thing. Now the ransomware wave has really hit and they're pulling up deductibles. Ransomware is now an endorsement, not necessarily part of the package deal. They're always a step behind.
1: Yeah.
0: Now I'm talking about a black swan event, but then the insurance carriers will say that this is like any other black swan event, like four hurricanes and an earthquake hitting the same time at Miami is like a one in a trillion event, which is true, except I'm not talking about four hurricanes and an earthquake. I'm talking about rogue at, well, not even rogue, I'm talking about state sponsored guerrilla warfare as, a, as, a, as a another means of political persuasion in a world where nobody really wants to see the nukes go off, but you kind of sort of do have different differences of opinion between the great powers. So I'm saying that's not a, a one in a trillion event. I'm saying it's likely, and I would bet one Bitcoin, you're going to see something like what I'm talking about before the end of our careers. Yeah.
1: So, but backpedaling a little bit though, I, I in my experience with captives, like uh, uh, there's certain industries that tend to gravitate towards joining together to, as a group to have a captive insurance group. And are there any, any industries that you, in your experience you feel are better equipped to fall under that umbrella?
0: Sure. Um, well, let's, let's, let's continue on with the, the, the doom and gloom idea. <laughs> if you have a cyber exposure of seven or eight figures, you should be self-insuring it because the market's not gonna be there for you. Correct, yeah. If you're in an otherwise battered and bruised industry, skilled nursing facilities, commercial trucking, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you. What, what are some of the other areas you just see get sued all the time? I mean, you, do you have any examples?
1: Well, I mean, I, I found, a lot of times I've seen captives in like even um, like Beauty salons for some weird reason. I, I've had experience with a lot of them kept joining together.
0: That's extraordinary. Odd. I've never yeah. seen
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> that's odd to me, but yeah, that's I've seen that before.
0: <laughs> so I wonder what their exposure would be there. So let's run, let's okay, let's run through this in our heads. So the 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 big ones I was listing are like highly regulated industries where you need to have A-rated paper. But the paper is so expensive, it's cheaper to sell. I'm sure commercial trucking being probably at the very top of the list, followed closely by my bread and butter, skilled nursing. Um, But if you're in a beauty salon, I wonder if their coverage, I'm not sure if it would be, I guess it'd be under the general liability cover. Mm -hmm. Like if you you injure someone, would that be under... Yeah, GL. Or be no, GL.
1: Yeah.
0: And GL, monoline GL, is historically pretty unprofitable. Like, it's it's, it's always a package deal, like PLGL, or, or GL and Worker's yeah. Comp. They generally don't sell it alone. So if you were to have a monoline GL policy, and you had enough beauty salons, then yeah, maybe I maybe I could see that working, well, then you got to figure it, out what layer you're taking into the captive. Go ahead.
1: It, and uh, maybe, and this is just something I'm thinking about, maybe it has a lot to do with your, technically your, your stylists aren't employees. Usually they're independent contractors, typically. Um, so you're the expert on this. So maybe that has something to do with it, that the, it's not a traditional employee model. It's a contractor model.
0: I can see that. I can see where the, the liability rates are so high that they may yeah. need to have a captive. And if it's in the liability space, they may want to consider a risk retention group so they can ride across state lines yeah. in contravention of mccarran ferguson
1: Yeah. So one thing that comes to mind, though, if you have, say you have a group of, you know, in your case, you have a group of skilled nursing facilities together. And what if one of those facilities has a catastrophic loss? How does that affect the rest of the group?
0: Well, it depends. So right now, we, you know, we all sing kumbaya. So if someone comes in with a million-dollar policy or a million-dollar verdict, uh, we are not going to pay a million-dollar settlement, that's for sure. But if you come in with a million-dollar verdict, um, it's coming out of the kitty, you know? So I got to talk about whether or not we're still properly collateralized after that. Um, But in a larger group, so let's let's, let's go back over to my good friends, the PEO crowd. Have you ever heard of a PEO? No, enlighten me. So these are—they have taken the. So if you think insurance is boring, oh my god! If I got something for you, these guys took all of it. They took insurance. They took benefits. They took all that stuff. The CEO just says, "Oh my god, kill me!" And they put it into one provider, and then these providers go around and just and just provide benefits and insurance coverage for just a ton of organizations. So I believe they're called a professional employer organization. Um, so anyway, the PEO can end up having participants in it that range from an underground mining company to a law firm. So the workers' comp exposure is just materially different. If you're a workers' comp carrier, how do you how do you price the proper risk for a group like that? It's impossible.
1: Yeah.
0: So. You need to have a lot of money before the underwriters are going to do the manual underwriting on an account like that. And most people, you know, even a big company is only going to have, you know, hundred thousand, quarter million dollars in workers' comp premium. So what the PEOS did was they banded together and they created a group captive. And then what they did was they layered the sucker up real well. So they basically, like, fundamentally, took a big deductible, half a million dollar deductible, and then financed the half million in the captive. But then the, like, specifically what they did was the first 100,000 was almost like a self-insured retention, yeah. ran through their captives, like it was financed by the captives. So they got that tax deduction on the front end for financing it. And then the next 400 excess of the of, of the 100 was shared according to what's called an incurred retrospective rating plan. And then a the 500 excess of 500, well really the infinity excess of 500, was with the carrier let's just yeah. pretend it's travelers doesn't matter who it's with sure. so in that 400 excess of 100 layer any losses in there were shared pro rata so if it was a $100,000 loss or i guess you know just to make make round numbers easy if for some reason we had $100,000 in that in that layer a $200,000 loss first 100 in the SIR next 100 in that shared layer with 10 people everybody contributes 10 grand to it and we all get angry at that guy who had big loss. Yes. But then at the end of the period, policy period, quarter, whatever, the offending party would then owe premium to the other participants of the pool is basically a true up.
1: Yeah. Because that was my, my follow-up question was, you know, well, it's almost twofold. One, do the member, say you have an established captive. Okay. Say you have, whatever, 20 entities established in this captive and there's a potential new party to come in. How does bringing in a new party work? And secondly, can you say someone has asked, they keep getting these loss, their loss ratios are so high and they, they're just break, they're draining out the captive. Can you then push that, that entity out?
0: Yeah. So it depends on the type of captive you have. There's risk retention groups, there's group captives, single parent captives. So if we're in some sort of a group, either an RRG or a what we call an actual group captive, then yeah, you can bring people in. This is much easier to do in RRG land, but let's start with group captives because I think your M&A crowd will understand it. You got A shares and B shares. And if you're in the founder's club, you're probably going to be A shares and they're going to be hard to kick out. So make sure you choose your business partners wisely. But as you grow, if someone's only bringing, you know, a couple of bucks a premium, but they have good loss ratios. You may want to offer them non-voting B shares. And if their loss ratio exceeds X for a policy period or two, kick them out. Simple as that. Um, but if, you know, somebody with A shares who has every right to be there starts burning it up and you don't have some sort of provision to either buy them out or have them exit gracefully on the front end. Yeah, they can burn up the whole program or you could lose your, your, your capital part, which would be... Yeah like Travelers or Liberty, whoever's helping you out with, um, uh, with the whole plan. So generally speaking, my recommendation is companies with good loss ratios need to be looking at captives. If you can't manage risk, you probably shouldn't be in a self-insurance world.
1: Yeah. And for, for you, like, how does your vetting process go? Cause you, I mean, you're, I mean, you're at, like, at the brink of this, you're starting this. And so you're, I mean, you have, you have entities part of your, your group. And so how do you, how do you go about vetting who's, who's, in, who's in and who's out?
0: So, I mean, the answer for me is easy. Uh, they hired me to do a self-insurance program. So, you know, I'm not going to non-renew anyone. Everyone's, everyone's <laughs> in. We own them all. Um, if I'm looking at uh, somebody coming to me, asking for insurance from me, I am allowed to offer insurance. Uh, uh, captive law allows me to do that. And because I'm a captive, it's oftentimes much, much cheaper because we're regulated much lightly, much more lightly by comparison to our admitted admitted carrier partners, raising the real question, why doesn't everyone use a captive? Mm-hmm. Well, number one, the you know, the admitted carriers have A-rated paper. AM best rated paper typically doesn't burn up. Some RRGs have, some captives have. So there's there's a brand problem that we have going against us. Uh, and there's also capacity problems. You know, I can only offer so much because, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a solvency ratio. So if I've got a million bucks in the bank and they're judging me on a, let's just say a five to one per, uh, premium to surplus ratio, I can only write up to 5 million bucks in gross certain premium. So if you come to me with a $50 million opportunity, I'm probably going to refer you out to one of my best friends just because I can't touch that. Yeah. So there's reasons to have different types of carriers. Um. In terms of pricing out the risk, the industry standard is to look at two lost ones. And that's useful. I think that it's better to try to understand the industry. And that's really where, where we can, can outpace a lot of our competition. I've looked at how many carriers look at things like skilled nursing facilities and the, the majority are, are just monkeys. They, they do not understand the nature of the risk. They don't know what questions to ask. They, they all copy each other. They all kind of sort of underwrite in the same way. And it's because literally the same employees move from company to company. It's all big club. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a lot of people saying, well, I, I don't know, we do it that way because CNA does it. Well, I mean, we're doing it that way because AIG does it. AIG and CNA have the, literally the exact same VPs removed by like three or four years from each other. So there's 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 not a lot of true innovation in in loss-picking, at least at the admitted carrier level. The reason that the admitted carriers do so well is because they have a billion dollars. So if you've got the ability to, to ride out the, the hard market or a soft market and you know, make a little bit less money uh, for some period of time, that's, that's a strategic advantage. It's just as good as having a moat. So where I need, so in order for me to survive, if I bring on third-party risk, I have to start looking at other areas, and I have to be a little dodgy on this because I I I can't tell you what my secret sauce is. We are actively working on yeah. some interesting um, underwriting algorithms. But if I were to go to something like let's just say commercial trucking, where I'm absolutely not doing anything, first thing I would do is I would go directly to the government. Okay, what data you got, and let me just start looking at it. Then you want to start correlating that. Okay, so like what are the non-intuitive leading indicators of risk? So find out you, know, you got to get some loss runs so you can see what losses look like and then start reverse engineering. OK, so how long were they driving? How many uh, what kind of stuff were they driving? What state were they in? What time of the day was it? And just start trying. to find. Was it sunny? Was, was it was it uh, you know, was the sun uh, reflecting off of the, the asphalt and creating like, like a difficult situation to see? Like you can start to train that out in the data. And when you see those kinds of um, signals in the noise. That's what you wanna price into your underwriting algorithm, okay? So this is, this is a little more complex in the way carriers do. Carriers will sit there and say, I need to see five years of loss runs, I wanna look at your managers, tell me how long you've been running the facility, Can you give me your experience. And then on industry by industry basis, they may ask a few other questions that are germane to the industry. But really developing like a bespoke like loss rating method, most admitted carriers won't do that. They just don't have the time.
1: So why, I mean, why is skilled nursing such a, it, like a, it, why is it such a great fit for that space, for this space?
0: Uh, I mean, most, most of the operators aren't able to manage the risk very well. I mean, the, the, the plan is barred as it does have a good point here. You know, they, they aren't winning all these cases. They're not getting these big settlements for nothing. You know, if someone comes in and, you know, they die of a pressure ulcer six weeks later. I mean, come on, man. I mean, like you kind of did that. So um, more often than not, there's mitigating factors. But I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, anyone in this spot, anyone listening to this who's litigate skilled nursing, you've seen the black hole nursing homes of death. There are thousands of them, thousands across the country. Um. Then you've got, you know, market forces. Uh, For whatever reason, the plaintiff's bar just has decided they're going after them, too. Well, it's not for whatever reason. You've got the government involved mandating one mil, three mil limits. So when you got the big limits, plus you got a lot of operators who aren't very good. And it's not particularly sympathetic to a jury. I mean, let's face it, it's, it's one step south of a hospital. And those those are hard enough to defend. Like it kind of adds up. Um, so you really have to be on your game to run these things well, and then you really have to be on top of claims to be able to defend them.
1: I mean, I feel as though too, there's just such a big emotion factor involved when, if someone wants to get hurt or pass, pass away in a skilled nursing facility, that the family has so much emotion that I feel like it's just ripe for lawsuits, you know, because the family likes to look for Comfort or reasons why this could have happened to their loved one too. So I just feel that there's just a it's like a minefield of risk.
0: Yeah, don't kill grandma. I mean, that's <laughs> that's basically if I'm a plaintiff's attorney, that's where I'm going to start and end my trial, and uh, that's persuasive. Um, and, and and let's not forget, you know, who are the idiots you have on the other side? I mean, you got more often than not, you know, corporate control of these skilled nursing facilities. Uh, they're going to show up in their suits. They're going to sound really smart, and they probably did the best that they could. But it doesn't really take a lot for the plaintiffs to be able to draw out, like, hey, you know, you're you're chronically understaffed, and you're you're making all this money hand over fist, and then it's really, I mean, it's difficult for the defense to be able to draw out. No, look, I'm not making money hand over fist when I do all these things for them. I'm actually, actually, this is actually a loss leader. I'm, I'm actually losing money on on these therapies, and 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 then the reason that we did this over here was because of this other factor. I mean, it gets technical, and unless you are Damn good at putting together a story, uh, you can lose the jury pretty quick.
1: Yeah, and I, I even at at this present moment, over the last I think two years, I think they've also gotten just a really bad rap. I mean, remember at the beginning of COVID, it was you know the, those the, the COVID is rampant through these facilities, and I think that that I think a lot of plaintiffs' attorneys latched on onto that as well.
0: Yeah, so the COVID thing, I'm actually pretty bullish on. Uh, if you want to sue me for COVID, bring it on. I mean. <laughs> Well, I might agree. I mean, mean, where's the (laughs) proximal cause? Yeah. It's the proximal cause? I mean, come on, duty breach causation damages. So like, (laughs) how are you going to, how are you going to prove by, I guess, the preponderance of the evidence that they necessarily got COVID from one of my, one of my employees versus literally anywhere else in the universe? (laughs) So I'm I'm fine with those cases. Uh, We haven't seen, I have not seen a single COVID related claim. So we are scared to death of COVID but it has nothing to do with sleazy plaintiff's attorneys. It has everything to do with just the, the, the human point of God. I mean, if these people, it spreads. In fact, it spreads like super duper fast. So I, I am, I am currently and like struggling to get uh, a couple of facilities to sit down with me and talk about some things I think are important with fall risk mitigation, okay? Sure. One of the reasons they keep blowing me off was because they had an outbreak of COVID and I was like, okay, how many people have it? Like overnight, they do testing all the time. Yeah. So overnight, 15 people got it. Uh. Out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And we test our employees every day. And we do mm-hmm. testing of the residents frequently. Um, I won't say every day because they just can't do it every yeah. day, but it's a lot. So all of a sudden, 15. Yeah. And you know what it was by the end of the third day? 30. Yeah, of course. That's how it works. You know, and like, We're quarantining people. <laughs> we got every employee wears a mask like in nice masks too. I mean, like, and even still you see it just rapidly spread. Now this is the Omicron version, which is like, yeah. I honestly, I honestly, God, believe it's more contagious than even the CDC realizes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's uncontrollable. Good thing. Nobody's dying. But uh, that was not the case with alpha when COVID came through the first time. Yeah. It, it killed a lot of people Yeah, and there was nothing we could do to stop it. What, what we literally had to do was put up like uh, not Mike, I mean, it was a, it was a physical barriers, plastic sheets. We had COVID wings and, and, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys are probably jumping up and down saying uh, we're about to make a lot of money because when we're spending time doing that, mm-hmm. we're not monitoring other things. So as a consequence, when COVID rolls through, I see an increase in incidents and slips and falls and claims and injuries. It just sucks. Yeah. Like very difficult to be able to manage a skilled nursing facility when you got COVID running through there like a, like a Grim Reaper.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's such a good point. I'm glad you bring that up, though, because I think that's something a lot of people don't realize. Like when you, you have to, I mean, rightfully so, have to focus attention over here on COVID, you know, it does draw that. And I, I hesitate in saying it this way, but it, it, you have to shift your attention and you don't want to shift your attention, but you, you're forced to. You know, you can't be looking in every direction
0: all of the time. Yeah, we've we've got we've got staffing shortages across the industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's and that's another area where the plaintiffs are, you know, they, they've been nailing us on the profits over patients arguments. But honestly, that, that's going to bring a little hollow now. I mean, it, it's their number one weapon against us is profits over patients you make all this money, which is not exactly true. The margins are thin to, to upside down. But on a cash flow basis, there's no question about it. Healthcare has a lot of money going through the system. Sure. So obviously, we're just a bunch of evil capitalists. But, <laughs> but the problem with that argument is that Medicaid reimbursement and Medicaid is a significant chunk okay. of the money that comes sure. for skilled nursing. Medicaid sucks. Like, it's bad. And not only is it bad, it's also behind. And I, I got to be honest, I don't even know if we got paid for July yet in the state of Texas. I mean, like, yeah. it's that far behind and it doesn't cover everything. In other words, it doesn't cover 100 cents on the dollar of the cost to treat. So we make up our money on Medicare and then private pay. And you just hope, hope for the best if you have too large of a Medicaid population. As a result, when you start hiring CNAs, it is very difficult to be able to pay 25, 30 bucks an hour, which is what we would like to do. It ends yeah. up being that more often than not, especially in rural areas where, again, rural area, what do you have? Medicaid. So when you have Medicaid as your primary payer in a facility and you're in a rural area, uh, you end up with people who uh, they just don't want to show up. Mm -hmm. It's a tough, tough, tough job. Okay, CNA is is the front lines grunt worker in these facilities and they get slapped, they get kicked, they literally have to clean up human effluence. It's not a pretty gig. And you can do that for 17 bucks an hour. Like, I don't know what the industry yeah. average is. I think the industry average is lower than that. The industry yeah. average is probably like 15 bucks an hour. So now let's pretend you're in Virginia. So you can take, you can take this job with a skilled nursing facility. where you are going to get literally punched by the end of the year by a, <laughs> a patient with dementia. Or you can work for the government where they'll pay you probably the same amount of money, but with government benefits. So it ends up being a situation where keeping these places staffed, yeah. it is extraordinarily hard. Because the money isn't there and the competition is extreme. So we're working on that, both you know within our own facilities, but industry-wide, we're, we're also working on that. But it's always going to remain um, a problem. The reason that I think that the plaintiff's bar may have overplayed its hand a little bit is that the labor crisis has finally was bled into other industries. So now like, it's going to be really hard to walk into court and say, profits over patients because you're understaffed. Meanwhile, like the local McDonald's can't get staffed up, and neither can your local restaurant or the local Walmart. So, you know, don't tell me it's profits over patients when, like, literally, this is the first time, at least my waking life, employees seem to be in charge and they don't necessarily want to work in all these places. So, the the profits over patients argument may be diminishing a little, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're no longer going to be right in the square of the bullseye. I I still think that there's enough incidents overall. To to keep the plants bar fat and happy for some period of time,
1: yeah, and I mean that is a good point to compare it to, you know, the other industries that are having such. I mean, there's staffing shortages everywhere, um, and that's a whole other discussion to dive into why that that is actually happening. But I mean, it it, it's true though, and and it's hard. It's probably very difficult to. To draw people in for that job, for that CNA job, the one that you need so badly, because it's not a glamorous job and it's a hard job. It's not like you're, you're exhausted at the end of the day, and you've had to deal with so much crap in literally during that day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but honestly, I feel like the, the the defense bar, you know, there's there's a gold mine that the defense attorneys are sitting on top of that that nobody seems to be interested in. But when you look at someone like me, my fundamental flaw is I lack the data to be able to tell you with a with a good degree of objectivity what a claim is worth. I can tell you basically what I think it's worth, because you know, we all take special damages multiplied by your favorite multiplier, depending on the state. And then if you settle for less than that, you know, you pat yourself on the back and call yourself a winner. But you know, when you saw Hippo in its most recent, it's an insure tech company in its most recent filing, they talked about one of their strategic disadvantages by comparison to their competition in mid carrier land, lack of data because they're new. So when I'm looking around at the sources of data out there, whether it be LexisNexis or Pacer or, or whatever, nobody has better data on losses than defense firms because you have a moat. You've got privileged data that you can access and leverage. And then you've got the settlements, you've got the verdicts. And then you can run natural language processing on all the communications between you and opposing counsel and what the claims adjusters notice that you got, plus all the motions filed in every single case by line of business, such that then you can start to reverse engineer the expected cost of every single case from the very beginning, three weeks as opposed to three months or even three years. And as a result, you can then become the guiding light for the actuaries over at the defense firm or the the insurance carrier. So the defense firm can become more like a consultant by leveraging its data, its irreplaceable data that the insurance carriers lack. And I've not seen a tremendous amount of of interest in this from literally any attorneys, but it's, it's, it's not hard to see where it goes. So let's pretend for the sake of argument that a couple of attorneys say, great, okay, then what? So I've got I've got this, I can forecast claims a little bit better. What's that worth to the carrier? Well, the game is up. So we stop over-reserving to the tits so and that we can sit there and say we're really, really good. No, we start proper reserving. I mean, I, I did it all the time myself back when I was when I was doing litigation. You know, you'd say it's worth 300 grand. You really know it's 50. You settle it for 65 and everyone says you did a great, a great day. But what the economic consequence of that is, is that you've now encumbered additional surplus as a reserve. And your reserves have to be invested very conservatively. Your surplus can be invested very aggressively. So it's an economic tragedy to encumber surplus as a reserve unless you need to. So the less reserves you have, the better off you are. So if the defense firm has perfect data or better data than the carrier saying that this is going to be worth X every single time, that little bit of money ball right there on the aggregate is going to be worth billions of dollars to a large enough carrier. Yeah. So the reason that defense firms don't do this is because you're making enough money on the hourly rate that you haven't had to do it. But that's an opportunity to sit there and change where you are in the value stack, which is just, you know, a part of the claims process, to being much more at the front of the line when you're talking to the actuaries about, you know, let's let's take the reserves down on these claims and be a little bit more tight with our predictive modeling. Leveraging that into a larger idea allows defense firms to maybe expand one step further, where I see the legal industry having a, a supreme advantage over the in, incumbent players.
1: I think that the the challenge is, I think a lot, of, a lot of attorneys in litigation aren't necessarily as data point driven as insurance is and and not that they shouldn't be, but I just think as just a general idea, like, I just think they're not as data, like data point driven, not, and they, we probably all should be, but I think that's probably where the catch up is that like, you're, you're a data guy. You, I mean, you, you clearly, clearly have that in you, but I think, uh, and I'm generalizing. I mean, I was, a, I was, I'm a math person, but I am not the norm. <laughs> Amongst my peers, I will say that. So, I, I and I do. I, I've had this um, quite, I've had this discussion with a lot of other friends of mine when when we talk about um, setting values for cases and when when we set recommended ranges, and people get really scared to put ranges and numbers on things because they don't want to be wrong. And I I think that's the problem. A lot of attorneys in this in this litigation world have a fear of being wrong. And how it will kick them in the face later.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get it. You never want to, you never want to come in too low and then it pop up. I mean, the the reality is that you need to have carriers that act more like business partners. Yeah. So yeah. the two big things are: did a new fact pop up we couldn't have predicted in the first place? If so, forgive it. And did you go to trial and lose? If so, forgive it. Like neither of those things, at least in, at least in my firm. Getting a getting a, a reserve wrong because of an insufficiency of facts. So long as there was no way for us to know in the beginning, whatever, man. I mean, it is what it is. Economic tragedies happen every day. And then if you lose, if we roll the dice and lose, that's on me. That is not on you. And I think those two things ought to be preached from the carriers toward the defense bar at every, every at every opportunity. Um, and that's why I think my panel is so good because yeah. I make sure that they know that. Um, yeah. I have their back if they lose. Where I get where I get frustrated with defense attorneys is when, you know, they 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 just do the paint by the numbers litigation. Well, and sure. honestly, if I'm I I I am finally in a position where I can pay whatever the hell I want for defense counsel and I am paying market healthy rate. I'm not saying overpaying, but I'm not busting people's balls on 20 or 30 bucks because I I didn't, I don't think that reducing your rate by 10, 15 bucks at each uh, timekeeper's level is going to, you know, restore profitability if we, you know, screw up our loss picks. What I I expect in return for the respect of of paying you what you're worth is, you know, I want to see okay, so in this situation, we can point the finger at this empty chair over here. We don't necessarily need to bring them in because we got this goofy law over here for third-party responsibilities. So that gives us an additional strategy. Oh, by the way, we actually have caps in this state on non-economic damages of 350 grand. So you have a million dollar limits, but you really don't have a million dollars at stake. Where the hell is that analysis? That's what I expect. Yeah. I want to see you thinking real hard about these things because if all you're doing is filing an answer and saying, I didn't do it, went to depots, <laughs> you know, I... Get the hell out of here. That's, 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 that's softball bullshit. So uh, when you demonstrate uh, a, a robust knowledge of how to manage the case from tip to tail, you're worth every penny.
1: Well, and it, it, I, I feel like I talk about this ad nauseum on this on this podcast. So everyone listening is like, okay, Megan, we hear you again. But in reality, in the first 60 days, you should be able to know how how that case is going to end up are you are you going to be able is it a case you're going to settle and for how much are you getting are you transferring risk over to some other entity or is it a summary judgment case it it doesn't have to be like okay we got filed the answer now we have to take this step now we have to retain this expert with like you don't have to check all the boxes just because there's boxes there that can be checked that you have to think about the actual case and how to exit that case and i i I mean, and I think that separates so many attorneys. There's so many who are just gonna just kick the can down the road and check the boxes. Um, and others who are like, are, aren't afraid to close a file because I mean, think there's a lot, a lot of attorneys who are afraid to close a file. because like, well, if I close the file, then what am I gonna do? What am I gonna bill on? <laughs> like, how about you close that file and maybe you'll get another one because you close it so quickly because they're so happy that you were able to close it.
0: <laughs> That's part of it. That's part of it. Um... I also think that, you know, you know, if I'm if I'm from the defense position here, I, I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult to remain in the, the headspace of of the character. So with a carrier like me, I mean, my God, my panel's like five law firms. It should probably be three. But I, I, I found this other guy. I was like, God, he seems smart. I want, I want to try him out. So I've got five law firms I'm working with. I know them by heart. So I said this last time, but you know I, I, I remain resolute that the marketing efforts for law firms need to start looking at where are your referrals coming from? And I don't want to have the same episode twice about social media, but I mean, let's face it, the claims adjusters, the ones who actually give you the cases, they're younger. Not all of them are going to be 55 or even 50. You know, they're going to be 25, 29, 34. They're going to be on TikTok. Are you on TikTok? I mean, like, yes. and if not, why? <laughs> You know, I mean, like there's there's like like I'm not I I have a TikTok account, but I'm not on it because my my revenue stream is not dependent upon younger people giving me things. Okay, now I may get on it because it's the world's fastest growing social media platform. I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Twitter just works better for where I'm at. But if I need claims from from people who are going to be jumping firms relatively frequently, having that personal relationship through Instagram, through Twitter, through TikTok. Finding them, following them around, and being authentic, you know, like shit posting memes with them. I mean, like you have to be somewhat irreverent, or let me let me reframe that. Your tone and tenor needs to match where you're at. So on LinkedIn, we all act like we're professional. And then on Twitter, it's a little more loose. On Instagram, it's much looser than that. And I know for certain attorneys, that's gonna be just antithetical, but if you're if you're an associate trying to get somewhere and you're not thinking this direction. Uh, shame on you because all the old strategies are out the door. I have not met any of the attorneys on my panel, not once. And I probably won't meet some of them ever. And I'm fine with that. We do zoom. We talk on the phone as frequently as I, I want to pay for. <laughs> and, and we, and we, and we coordinate like that. So the, the, and by the way, we're growing. So when I start to delegate down these claims to someone else, I'm not bringing in people to do bad faith, um, Luncheons with me. Like even, even if I have a hundred employees, it's just not going to happen. So how do you get my clients? You know, you got, you got to get them know us where we're at and we're all going to be somewhere in the digital universe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would have, to, I mean, I, I approach marketing similarly to how, how you're talking about. Like I, I, for me, I think COVID was a happy introduction, happy. I embraced it because it changed how you market because gone were the days you had to fly out across the country to have a lunch with somebody in hopes that you might get a call later like done (laughs) Like that is not worth my time (laughs) and i feel like it and i feel like you can make much more meaningful and significant connections eliminating that but some people that's that's their tea and that that some people that's how they do it and that's fine it's that's not my tea
0: yeah well i mean Different startups, different folks. It sounds like we're, we're, we're generally on the same page. Uh, but the getting, getting, getting the attention of the claims adjusters is hard enough. But then when you remember that they've got at least another 50 attorneys on hand who are probably just as good as your firm, then you have to figure out that way of differentiating yourself. And you don't even try to compete on price in insurance defense. Everyone's already kind of been pushed down as far as they're going to go. Yeah. So how, do, how how do you do it from there? And look, let's face it, even if you I had I had a very frustrating situation somewhere where I had two different law firms win trials, two different states, two different law firms, different kinds of business, just a coincidence. I had a tough time getting those law firms to get more referrals because of the institutional push to use the, the same old same old. So you've just got people who just know like if I use biggest law firm in the country. Nobody's going to second guess me about it. And things typically tend to go okay. So why would I upset the apple cart and use these upstarts over here? Yeah. I mean, good old fashioned politics gets in your way.
1: Yeah. So it must be uh, like, you you must be very happy to embrace like a new setting that you can, I mean, you get to choose how you want to, who you, who you use a hundred percent and you're not, swayed by upper politics or anything. So it must be, you know, a happy change for you to be able to be like, Hey, I love these three or five council. And that's, that's who I want to use. And you don't have to answer to anyone but yourself.
0: It's helpful. It's helpful. It's no more pressure. (laughs) I'm right. (laughs)
1: Um, But I mean, if you're wrong, what's the worst that can happen? You have a conversation, you might have a a separate relationship, which sucks, but I mean, it's business and that, that happens.
0: You know, I, I, I again, I'll never fire a law firm for losing. Um, right. I will I will fire a law firm for substandard performance, um, not enough insight, getting outflanked to procedural things, or generally speaking, telling me that we just can't bring the heat on things. Like I need you to be thinking of the innovative stuff to do. I mean, I think of innovative stuff in insurance all day long as if it's my job. And if you're not as passionate about defense as I am about on, on the carrier side, then I don't want to be your friend. Like I mean, I mean that's seriously too. That's not even a joke. Like I literally, like I'm privileged enough now to be around people who like love to do what they do, typically the best in their profession do love what they're doing. So why would I hang around an average attorney who's you know struggling to just open his eyes about you know civil procedure? I want to be with the person who's like got that trick, like, you know, not everyone plays this game over here in St. Louis County and we can actually remove it over there. But here's like the pluses and the minuses. And let's think about this. I got an email the other day from an attorney right off the bat. He has like eight different things we just need to think about. I'm sitting there thinking like, great. That's, that's I mean, like, I know he charged me 0.3 or 0.5 for that. Fine. Whatever. It gives me something to think about. It brings me a little bit further into this into the case. No, oh, by the way, if it screws up, now i have got a little bit more self-like like ownership in this thing. Now the carrier actually is like thinking about it. Uh, that's the kind of attorney I like. Uh because now I know for sure it's not just the paint by the numbers litigation. Uh, and look, to thine own self-be true. When I was in GL, I wasn't exactly inventing new ways of litigating claims. I mean, GL kind of goes in, in in its fashion. So if you're in that space, if you're if you're litigating a lot of geo claims, then what what unique things do you bring? I mean, you can't just be aggressive in trial. I mean, everybody is. So what are you doing beforehand that's different from your competition?
1: Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if someone were to come to you and be like, you know, I'm kind of meek at trial. <laughs> I just kind of let it happen. <laughs> actually in a way that might be something you pay more attention to like at least they're honest
0: yeah yeah it's a it's a hell of a marketing strategy it's like the bank saying we don't have much money
1: buyer beware well Matthew I know you have a hard hard stop and I, I don't want to run over on on you but um I I I truly appreciate you spending the time, time with me again today and giving us, you know, a little one-on-one on captives. And, you know, and I just love talking to you because you're so passionate about insurance and data that, you know, I love hearing your very candid um, input on, you know, what the defense market are doing differently and then what you look for. Because I think our listeners, you know, people, claims adjusters and attorneys really value what, what you have to say on the issues.
0: I'm seriously considering putting together like a seminar on like how to sell to insurance carriers just, just so that poor associates can have some. Honestly, like I do have to go, but like that, that probably was my number one complaint uh back when I was in defense. Well I even plaintiffs, just like nobody sat down and said, here's how you sell. You know, that that was that was always such, such a, such a third tier consideration. They just, they weren't, they weren't trying to develop that that skill set. Um, and, as a, and as a consequence, I, I legitimately, I know for a fact, there's partners who just get promoted because they've been there for you know, long enough. And they have no idea what to do. <laughs> like, what a stupid model. All right. Gotta get going.
1: Thank you so much for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.